Hello and welcome to Adventures in AI, where the InsightFlow team members share things that have caught our attention over the past week and talk about our own experiences in the world of AI. I'm Giles. I'm Rich. And I'm Graham. And Giles, as the serious member here, I gather you've now actually decided to find some fun and games in multi, multi-modal models. I can't even say it. Multi-modal easy models. easy for you to say. Uh, I'm hoping that by the time I've talked about it for a few minutes, I'll be able to say it as well. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, talking about different kinds of models that are, are coming out. Um, and it's not really individual models. It's more the way those are now being deployed. Um, so OpenAI announced this week that they're adding capabilities to chat GPT that will allow it to read files and images directly and also to generate images. And they also separately demonstrated the ability to talk to an assistant and get it to do things on your behalf by calling APIs. So th their assistant has a, a much more realistic sounding voice than assistants like Siri. And I guess, you know, you can kind of think of that voice interaction as the next generation of of Siri and, you know, OK, Google and, and, and th those types of um, assistants. So, you know, although it's been technically possible to talk to a machine, get it to do things, I think the big difference is the ease of development for these types of multimodal assistants. So before it was only really the big guys that were able to create these kind of um, assistants. And by giving developers tools that allow them to really easily create assistants um, and allow users to interact in the way that they feel most comfortable with or the way that's most appropriate given whatever environment they're in i think it has the ability to completely transform the way that we interact with computers there's a there's a thing that's always been the case about it as soon as as long as computers have been around and probably before that this question about how data is put into the systems as being one of the big limitations and the fact we've still got keyboards and the fact that we've still got keyboards that are actually QWERTY keyboards way beyond after the need for the QWERTY layout is an indicator that they still haven't actually nailed this idea of, of, of how we interact with our machines. So, so uh, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, it's, it's kind of interesting. So the reason, you know, in a similar vein to QWERTY keyboard is only there to stop the, the hammers from crashing into each other, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, there's a similar thing that on, on the genesis of technology. So where does it come from originally? Um, which is why the width of railway tracks is what they are. And the width of railway tracks is the width that they are because the carriage wheels in Roman times were a certain width. And you can see if you go to places like Pompeii, what the, carri the carriage wheel widths are so I, I always think it's fascinating that you can see from you know where things came from and and there will eventually become a point where trains float um using maglev or some other technology and therefore the width of the tracks won't matter anymore um but you know it, it comes all the way from there anyway sorry that was a bit of an aside but um so, so I think, um, yeah, and, and, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think the difference in the way that we interact with computers is, is quite fundamental. If, if humans are no longer the main inputters of information into a computer, then, uh, that completely transforms 
how we work with them. And I, you know, for me, I think there's sort of three three key things that it will change. Um, so the first is instead of a human actually being the interaction with the computer, it's the AI. So you know, we'll interact with the AI in the same way that we interact with a coworker and friends. So you know, in the old world, if you were asking somebody to to you know, can you do some data entry for me, for example, then we can ask the AI to do that instead. Um, and when the best way to communicate with the computer is to write, we'll do that. Um, but most of the time we'll talk to it because it's more efficient and generally we feel more comfortable doing it. And then sometimes we'll draw pictures. So, you know, what, what does this mean in terms of the design uh, of offices and workstations if everyone is talking all the time for example you know if i'm sitting next to somebody particularly loud or should i say particularly loud uh, will that cause problems with the ai understanding what i'm telling it to do so you know it, it'll get confused because my instructions are mi mixed up with graham who happens to be shouting next to me um you know, it even starts to ask questions like, will I even need a computer or will a smartphone and a big screen that it's attached to be enough to do everything that I need to do? I think there's, I mean, apart from the idea of, of, of me being a shouter, um, I think that, I think that we've all been in offices where, where the, that one person on the phone who is the least self-conscious in the office is the noisiest has, has been a problem. And I, I still strongly suspect that uh, that purely voice command and purely voice input feels like a long way off with most of the people I know. I suspect that there's a privacy of the keyboard and the screen that will take a long time to 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 escape. But of course, the counterpoint that to that is that pre-computer. There was a whole generation of managers who were entirely used to the idea of dictating letters and dictating memos and dictating stuff to human secretaries who were taking it down. So, so I may well be the the oddity here, and and reverting back to behaviours that we had pre-computer. Well, I think yeah, and, that, and that's I really think we've the, seen in in lots of offices nowadays where you do have those telephone rooms, uh, and at the moment they're probably just a handful on, on each floor. Um, but I think you're right maybe that needs to be expanded or everyone needs access to those um if we're going to interact with with computers verbally on a day-to-day -day basis and actually the evolution of how that happens is probably more along the lines of there are so-called telephone rooms that people go to when they want to talk to ai um, and gradually they become more and more numerous <laughs> until everybody has one yeah, no, I mean, if, effectively, if you look at the offices of the 1950s and 60s, they were built with everyone having an office. And it was only, or, or you know, if, if you were uh, in some organizations in the US in particular, it was cubicles. So everyone had a kind of slightly soundproofed and private cubicle, but they were, you know, the walls didn't go all the way up to the ceiling. So, so I think, you know, there's a distinct possibility that actually we're going to have to kind of go back to the kind of office space that we had before or think of a different way of doing it like everyone work from home um, now of course that assumes that there isn't another interface which is direct plugging into the brain uh, which I'm sure Elon Musk would be very happy about but but for the time being I don't think that's quite yet there so so the second thing um, for me was you know th this idea of 
going deskless. So instead of us doing something on a computer, the AI will do things for us and can have access to all of the systems and services that we normally use. So, you know, at a personal level, some of this already exists with Amazon Alexa and Google Home services where you can connect apps and control them by voice so you can get it to kind of turn on the radio or add something to your shopping order or, or um, your calendar. <clears throat> so this is fairly basic and quite prescri prescriptive. And if you add a layer of intelligence between the request and the service being used, it should actually improve the user experience quite a bit. Um, and also, probably more importantly, from a business perspective, allow much more complex tasks to be achieved. So, you know, in a work environment, if I'm trying to pull together a report, um, I can ask the AI to do any research I need uh, to pull data from a number of different systems and pull that together in a report illustrated with pictures and formatting, you know, using a company template or, or something like that. So uh, all I need to be able to do then is explain what I need in much the same way as, you know, if I had a project team working for me and I went, right, can you go off and do this? You go off and do that. Um, and that means no more mouse, no more keyboard, no more fighting with trying to get, you know, slides or PowerPoint to actually put things in the right place for you. Um, no more worrying about system logins. That one might be a stretch, but um, so once it's set up, the AI can handle all of that stuff for me and I can sit in a cafe or on a train with just my phone and still be highly productive which, you know, I think sounds quite appealing, personally. So I think I'm going to give away here how lazy I am. Um, but an actual genuine quality of life improvement for me has been smart light bulbs. I tell Alexa I don't want to turn the light off. Um, so I don't have to get out of bed. Um, but I think that's probably a, a really neat example of you still do the complicated stuff. So the hard bit would be knowing when I would need the light off. And the easy stuff, actually going to flick the switch, anyone could do. So that's it, it, it's making sure that you can focus your energy and attention on the harder tasks and and leave the uh, everything else to be automated. In fact, and I'm going to talk about this later. Um, Musk talks about exactly that division of the stuff that's the things we just don't want to do particularly, or are boring, or repetitive, what have you and freeing up humans to do the things we do want to do. So I, I do th I do think there's in there. I do like the idea, Giles, of not having logins, though, even if you reckon it's going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that would be brilliant. Uh, I, I mean, I think the, the, the interesting logical conclusion of that is that essentially the only value of a human is a brain. Uh, so once AI is doing everything else for us, then, you know, we, we can just be a brain in a jar and actually the rest of it doesn't really matter, which doesn't necessarily, you know, so that then we have to decide how to use our bodies in ways that are kind of, that are not necessarily useful from a work perspective, but useful from a personal or kind of social perspective. So that, yeah, so then, then the third thing, and this, I guess, sort of illustrates the point about brain in a jar <laughs> That, that we all we all effectively become managers with superpowers. So in you know in this future world, which is actually not that future, it's probably the next twelve to eighteen months, uh, we'll start to see real strides in this direction. Um, 
basic computing skills like Microsoft Office and using specific business systems like accounting and, and other things will become much less important. Um, so we'll probably still need experts in these for a while, um, but actually the majority of workers who were never experts in them will be able to delegate that to the AI. And that means that effectively everyone becomes a manager of the AI or AIs that are working on their behalf. Um, so if you then think about, well, what skills do the next generation of employees need? Um, they need to be good at getting the AI to do what they need. Um, and this is a, you know, it's a completely different skill set to getting a computer to do what they need because it's not, it's, uh, and I can never remember the right way around, but it's, uh, computers are deterministic, I think, um, in that there's a uh, computer says no or yes, right? Um, whereas AI is non-deterministic, it's probabilistic, um, and therefore, uh, you know, you get shades of grey. So actually getting it to do the right thing to the right quality becomes a skill in itself. And it's a skill that you can learn, as, as we know from kind of learning prompt engineering. Um, so, so I think it's also worth not noting that AI is actually very good at helping with planning tasks. Um, so ChatGPT, actually, I, I've noticed in the last three to four months, they've there's a methodology where you do the plan first and then act. I think it's called plan act, imaginatively. Um, and so you can see ChatGPT going, right, here are the things that you need to think about, which really is here are the things that ChatGPT needs to think about. And that keeps it in line with answering or helping you with the task that you're trying to do. Um, so it means that even people who may struggle to know what to do or what steps to take will actually be able to use the AI to help with that. So it means things like, you know, someone coming into a new organization doesn't know what the processes are, doesn't know anything about the organization, can actually become productive much, much faster. Um, and the ability of people in, in the team to execute to a higher standard, regardless of their, their ability, you know, cognitive ability or otherwise, um, will actually be quite significantly enhanced, I think. So I actually think in, in terms of, you've reminded me there about onboarding new staff, and I think we've touched on it previously in one of the podcasts. I think actually increasingly... AI and how you interact with AI is going to filter its way through onto job descriptions um, and, and CVs. So just like you, you might see, you need to be proficient with the um, Microsoft suite um, for this job. I think that's going to filter through to you need to be able to get AI to do the things we need it to do. Yeah, d definitely. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's very similar to, uh, you know, it used to be typing was was kind of fairly important things like punch cards and stuff like that were very small group of people that had to become expert in those but then suddenly you go from that to pretty much everyone needing to know how to use a computer knowing how to use a smartphone and suddenly you could end up in a situation where you know the thing the tools that certainly you know I've used all of my career um, suddenly don't aren't as important anymore and I, you know i think that's a pretty pretty significant shift um so uh, which you know i guess i i think there's a whole topic that we could 
talk about on the potential implications this has on society more broadly as well actually um uh, in in open ai's um dev day the way sam altman described the future of ai was that it'll elevate the human race by giving everyone tools that have cognitive abilities of a top university graduate he didn't say that specifically but that was kind of the imp implication um and i think you know that's a really appealing perspective if we can if we can make everyone perform at the level of the top university graduate brilliant um but i think with all or as with all disruptive technologies um and ai i think is extremely disruptive it'll also devalue many of the things that currently give people a sense of worth in society so if i've built my work identity around the fact that i'm the expert in the finance system and suddenly an ai can do it all for me or you know i've i've become a developer um and uh that's where i kind of generate my um my self-worth it's going to be really difficult for society to to see the level of change that's going to happen in a short period of time um and i think managing that transition is going to be a real challenge um I would say the tech industry has a habit of leaving someone else to deal with that kind of thing. So I think that brings us quite neatly onto um, the steps that governments are taking to address some of those challenges. So I know, Graham, you were keen to talk about the uh, AI security conference that the UK government hosted recently. Yeah, and it was obviously in the news and, and big news over the last week or so. In fact, the, the bit of it that I particularly want to focus on, because I think it was a really interesting um, view into these respective worlds, was the conversation interview between Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk, um, who sat down at the end of the conference and, and, and did an on-screen conversation. Now, it's kind of worth listening to. It's 52 minutes of it. Um, and it was interesting for a number of reasons. And you know, I started I, so listening. I to thought it. you'd um, you'd listen to it for us, so we didn't have to listen to it ourselves. Is that not how it works? Well, yes. I, I mean, I'm hoping to give most of the highlights of it, and and therefore you don't need to listen to Richie Sunak creeping up to Elon Musk, Musk too much. <laughs> um, Excellent. Uh, and I, I was fascinated by it because my impression of what I've heard reportedly that Elon Musk has said is deep pessimism about AI and about its impact on, on humanity. And obviously coming at the back of a security conference, there is a, a very much a thread about the threat and the threats of, um, of what AI is going to do. Um, and Elon Musk was, it was fascinating in it. I, and I, I was, quite impressed by what he was saying I mean, he basically had three major areas where he was sort of looking at where that threat was coming um and the first example he gave and perhaps the most obvious one in many ways is that of deep fake the, you know the power of ai to produce utterly convincing um replicas of people saying things that are utterly under the tool of the creator rather than those people is is has i think obvious bad potential should it be in the hands of bad actors um and it's, it's really interesting that that one actually they didn't really talk about a solution um and i think that solutions to it are incredibly difficult 
But I also think that there's a, a sort of really interesting side thought here that fakery in media has been with us as long as media has existed. You know, whether it's you know, the first printing presses in the 16th century churning out propaganda pamphlets that are lies, that are full of lies. You've got the... I mean, amusingly, at the beginning of the 20th century, the Cottingley Fairies. Now, if you don't know about the Cottingley Fairies, go and have a look at them. They are brilliant. But this pair of girls who at the time, I think, were sort of something like 16 and 9, were using cameras to fake interactions with fairies. Um, and they put these out. And adults later on picked them up and, and, and treated them as if they were completely real. And, and treat them as proof of all sorts of spiritualist and, and various other aspects. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle famously was using cottonly fairy pictures to pr prove spiritualism. Um, so people have always misused media. And there's been this reliance on credulous readers to knowingly or unknowingly sp spread lies and disinformation. So I'm not sure that the, 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 the deep fake thing is new. I mean, it's obviously more sophisticated. It's obviously using 21st century technology and the power of AI to produce it and churn it out and increasingly make it look unbelievably real is definitely something that our society is going to have to deal with, that our government's going to have to deal with. Um, but I, I feel that it's part of an, an ongoing trend on that particular area. And the response is probably similar to the response it's always been that we need to be educating people about the possibilities that what they're seeing or reading may not be true and we have to encourage a degree of of sort of skeptical consumption um, but at the end of the day um some people are going to want to believe some people are going to want to deceive and that combination will be a powerful um part of society I don't know about um, both of you, but I, I've definitely, and this has only been in the last, say, four or five months, noticed deep fake, well, I guess, bad actors acting badly, um, mostly in the form of kind of shorts. And, and I think it's, it's always been a fake of the Joe Rogan podcast where he's saying something and, and usually it's trying to to lead you down to a link that's obviously a scam. Um, but it, at the moment, like, I, I do notice within about, say, four or five seconds, but it does take me a little while, and it's only through looking at the... Uh, his lips aren't quite moving naturally that, that I, that I realise. And you're right, Graham, it is going to get to the point where people won't realise, um, and that the only solution to that is then the education. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think... The, the interesting thing, you know, we, we've always, or for quite a long time online, assumed that text might be, might have been created by a bad actor. And even then, you know, um, I remember uh, receiving invoice, like uh, invoices actually when I was at the BBC that were for a million dollars, I think it was a million pounds for Oracle, uh, from what looked like from Oracle. And you have to look at it and go, is that real or not? Um, and that's been, you know, that's been easy to do for sort of 10, 15 years. Um, and people still fall for those kind of scams. And the only way you capture 
that and stop it is as you say by by educating people i think i think that what's different is being able to use the likeness of a human being um and do that at scale at speed you know kind of on an industrial scale i think is where it gets quite scary because you know it, it it's pe- people have tried to pretend to be someone's spouse or pretend to be you know a member of their family to try and get money out of people that's been going on for a while um and i think you know the, the scammers will always be creative in the way that they do it um they'll always try and use new tools in the same way that entrepreneurs do to to, to achieve their goals but um but yeah i think i think it's it's the scale and la- the low cost of it that's probably the scariest part I think what's interesting in that and at risk of 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 using an argument that the nra use across across the water um the idea that it's the 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 not the gun but the the person that's the problem Um, rapper i I do feel (laughs) i do feel that there's quite a lot of truth rich knew the reference graham obviously didn't yeah No. I'll, I'll I think like guns treatment. don't kill people rappers do it's a song right <laughs> on a documentary okay. on BBC two <laughs> okay I, I mean I do think there's a lot of truth in the fact that quite a lot of the threat from AI actually comes from the combination of AI and bad actors um, and I haven't heard anybody sensibly articulate the sort of singularity arguments that bad AI will take over our world yet. I mean, it may well come and people may well articulate it, but I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, the second area that Musk pulled out is being of a threatening nature, and particularly in the context of the security conference, was the idea that AI is progressing so very quickly that it's almost impossible for any, any regulator to keep up. And he he said that governments were necessarily slower from their very nature in 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 responding now yeah as to say the context of the of the conference um was that it was that it should be government or governments that provided a solution and um yeah musk was very very keen on the idea of what he called the external safety check this idea that says that and where external is external to the ai industry that new things going out should be put through a filter that is not the AI industry. Um, and I think that you know, he was, he, he was, they were talking about this idea that this speed, speed of progression was such that, that the impacts were going to come more quickly, um, bad or good. And in a security conference context, bad being the, the, the focus one. Um, it was also interesting that in this context, they were also talking about um, whether open source was um, different or should be viewed differently from proprietary code bases. Um, yeah, must suggest that open source is actually about six to 12 months behind um, proprietary systems. So the stuff we don't have access to every day um, is even more advanced than the open source stuff that we're we're all talking about um 
and he also su- suggested that yeah, open source in this speedy world was a huge risk because by its nature it opened up code base to bad actors, whereas people who own tools who are building proprietary systems have much more control. But what was really interesting about that was, yeah, they talked at length in the security conference about this and didn't actually really come up with the solution. This idea of the external safety safety check is clearly quite important. Um, but I, I, I didn't get the impression that Elon Musk truly believed that a government could could plausibly provide that external safety check and i suspect that suspect that he would like it to happen somewhere else what like a company that he founds i think when your point about um open source being um six to 12 months behind at the moment and and that's um that's absolutely true and, and it absolutely makes a huge difference at the moment um but the way I like to think of it, it's like the it's the evolution of screen resolutions. Like we jumped to um, full HD, that was a big obvious improvement, and we've jumped to to 4K, that's a considerable improvement as well. But actually, I, I don't know if you've seen an 8K screen. You're getting to the point where it, it's it's not making as big a difference as, as the previous jumps before it. And, and when we get to that stage with the the AI models open source being six to 12 months behind probably isn't going to make a, a huge amount of difference. Um, so that is probably a point in time where a lot more people may be seriously considering it. I think, yeah, that, that, that's a good analogy, actually. Um, I actually don't think the, the open source ones are as far behind. So some of them are actually now getting ahead in specific scenarios. Now, this is obviously what I'm not talking about here is, for example, Tesla's self-driving AI, where they may have some tech in there that we just don't know about. But in terms of things like OpenAI and the models like that, that are commercial, but um, are ones that are, uh, are kind of um, able to be used by the rest of the world. I, th- I think, you know, you're not seeing so much of a difference between things like that and Llama now. Um, so, so I think there are some, some kind of, ca- or there is some catching up going on. Um, I think the other interesting thing about this point is what is the what's the role of a government and how does it regulate? Because for me, there's a piece that says actually regulating social media algorithms is something that governments have never had to do before. Regulating human-like behavior, bad or good, is something that actually governments have got thousands of years of law on their side to to do and so and and if you if you accept the premise that an ai actually behaves much more like a human does then the legal frameworks that you can use and the kind of knowledge that the legal industry has on how you write legislation to to deal with that kind of thing actually becomes potentially easier than than some of the other things they've been having to deal with recently it doesn't mean it's easy, but but it you know you can think about it in a slightly different way. So I think that the the second problem you then have is responsibility. So who's responsible for an AI going rogue? Um, and I think that's the part they need to deal with first, in my view. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think my, I think my my own personal cynicism about it, perhaps slightly shaped by the legislation through the digital age where it was always felt as though it was 
four or five years behind is is the fact that the best will in the world legislative process is going to put them behind the drag curve that that it's 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 quite difficult legislation by its nature tends to be reactive and if you've got a and a 12 to 18 month minimum window from framing law and getting it through the getting it through the legislative process and what have you and you're reacting something you know, you're effectively reacting to something that's 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 you know, one to two years old in a world where things are changing very quickly the um final area that that musk was talking about as being potentially a threat was what he called the rise of digital superintelligences and, and he's saying that, you know, in really fundamental areas like transportation, you know, aviation and cars, the, the rise of superintelligence was likely, if not already happening. Now, clearly, the cars bit is, is talking to his, his, his deep interests. And, and once again, though, he was talking about this idea that said that as we hand over responsibility for safety in aviation, in cars and what have you, to digital superintelligences, AIs, the idea then that bad actors could intervene and take over or intervene and harm or intervene and corrupt those digital superintelligences became plausible, but also became much more damaging. The idea that these superintelligences could be subverted is one of the big areas of risk. Now, it's quite interesting that Musk didn't actually really suggest that he saw this as a huge problem in and of itself unsurprisingly given what he else he does um and his sort of elision was it was actually what he wanted what he suggested was that it was a good thing that we were handing over some of this stuff to superintelligences because what he suggested and in fact we you know we've already touched on it to a degree in this podcast that that the superintelligences could um pick up those thankless tasks that humans don't want to do um and um, he actually talked about the threat, but didn't talk about any type of solution in this. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm not sure what sort of solution it is, but, but yeah, he, in fact, what he, you know, he, he did actually say is that in the not too distant future, it's completely plausible that humans wouldn't need to work. Again, echoing Giles, what you were saying earlier. Um, and, and of course, he didn't see are, this. Are as you a suggesting now, managers suspect- don't work? Or the, well, the point being that they don't need to work, and 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 I just I don't I think possibly coming out, you know, possibly slightly beyond the immediate future that we're we're t- we tend to talk about in adventures in AI. We the the idea that 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 there's a point in the future where humans won't need to work, and where they do work, it's it's because they want to, or because they're having fun, or because they're doing something that's a challenge to them, um, and in fact, yeah. As the person in, of the three of us who, who, whose job it is to cite science fiction wherever possible, I was pleased to see that Musk cited Ian M. Banks and the, his culture novels as an articulation of, of what, the, what humanity would look like in a world where AI was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, and as a complete fan of Banks, I, I applaud that reference. Um, and, but the final part of that thought process was basically look it's going to be a good thing but the problem comes as ever is when bad actors start to intervene and misuse those powers and the greater the powers 
the greater the potential for bad actors to misuse them. It, it's quite funny, actually. So the the AI security conference, it was on the news. Um, um, and, and the guest that they that they had on, I think, was they were almost explaining the plot to Terminator with Skynet. It's, it's to say how big a threat it could be. Um, and my dad said to the TV, oh, don't be stupid, just pull the plug out. But I think those two uh, those two points of view are the two extremes um, and the reality is somewhere in the middle. Like, obviously, with the cloud, you can't just pull the plug out if, if you've integrated AI with certain tools and you've been able to send that. Um, potentially, that's gone, gone out there. Um, but at the same time, I think you can metaphorically pull the plug out in terms of the tools and the what access that you grant to the AI. Um, so for example, AI is not going to have access to the, the nuclear launch codes, or, or at least we'd certainly hope so. I yeah. think what's difficult about it is if you've got um, bad actors who are looking to take over, you, potentially using AI as a tool to help them find vulnerabilities in systems and because AI is actually highly fluent in code then it's probably going to have a pretty good chance of finding vulner vulnerabilities and therefore uh, the risk does increase I think um, and I think you know Graham the point you made is probably the, the critical one which is the more powerful the tools, the more dangerous it is when they get in the wrong hands. So, you know, if you go back to prehistoric times, the first guy that discovered that a flint makes quite a good tip for a spear had an advantage until the guy next to him nicked it um, and stabbed him. You know, and it's, it's that it's that that sort of that's kind of hardwired into human behavior as much as anything else. But um, but it means that, that, you know, the 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 for want of a better phrase the good guys will always have to find ways to protect themselves against the bad guys and, and that sometimes means being stronger um at the things that the bad guys do yeah um i mean the, I, th I think within that at the risk of sort of extending this out slightly longer um i think there is a i think it is plausible to suggest areas where these types of of things may happen so the one that i always use when i'm talking about it is the risk of so take a situation where it is entirely plausible to suggest and in fact i do believe i know it's happening that financial organizations are using ai to help their trading and that those ais are 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 um rewarded and improved based on the speed and accuracy and profit making of those trades that they're doing equally I know that within the the, the, the the securities market and what have you, there are AIs now that are helping drive pricing and helping actually do the market making part of 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 the market, making the market the the function that was once done by the stock jobbers and stock brokers in the stock exchange, as an example. Now we've seen plenty of occasions where AIs have cheated on tests. And, this, and the idea that those two separate AIs should start to collude, that the trading-based AI and the market-making-based AI start to collude, I think is actually quite plausible. 
and at that point they will be operating on their own reward system not for the benefit necessarily of anything else and certainly not in the, in the idea of a free market that would that was would be tried to be established in that process so i think i think you can point to particular areas where instances of ai's joined together or communicating with each other has a real risk yeah yeah i mean the the, the biggest example would be you know we, we have the first drone war going on now in ukraine and yep. and people getting hold of or co-opting drones for their own purposes or whatever becomes really dangerous so talking about the news that's been happening this week the other big news in the ai world was the open ai dev day from which i've seen huge amounts of reports now rich i think you've got a few thoughts to pick up from that yeah, so there's obviously been a huge buzz this week around Dev Day. Um, a, a, one of the large reasons for that has been um, GPTs. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about them. Um, so if anyone's unfamiliar with what GPTs are, they are the custom AI models that are focused on specific tasks or topics um, that any user can now create just through having a natural language conversation with ChatGPT. Oh, um, Rich, be sorry, Rich, before you, you go, what does GPT actually stand for? <laughs> um, uh, generative, I don't, I can't, <laughs> I should know. General purpose transformer, isn't it? Purpose transformer, yeah. Ge ge I think it's gen general purpose <laughs> transformer. And, and um, sorry, the other, the other question, so Dev Day, th this was OpenAI's first dev day yeah. i think i'm right in saying is that right yeah so uh, and and so this when i'm talking about gpts this is a feature of um what well of, of chat gpt um so it's a, a, a something that open ai have done um and so th these gpts that you can train they have all of the new kind of the multimodal abilities that um giles you spoke about earlier um, plus they can also call custom APIs um, and can be trained on custom knowledge. So it, for some of you that are maybe more familiar with coding solutions of, um, uh, of, of AI and Langchain, calling custom APIs like um, connecting with Zapier or dating your own documents that, that, that contain your own knowledge, um, those are all things that are starting to be built into um, ChatGPT and, and the, the, the web chat interface. Um, and it, essentially it's so i talked there about people that are making coding solutions possibly knowing about um how they would do this already the point here is that anybody even if you don't have programming programming skills now that you can start to create these models so does that mean all the time so, i've spent learning how to do this is i can throw it out the window <laughs> so uh, yes and no um so I think it, what it actually does is it gives more options um, to developers um, because you can either go down the, the, the now maybe slightly easier routes of just using inbuilt functionality and that means you can spend more of your time do, doing other things that are important that create a lot of value for, for your business or kind of what you're working on. Um, so, so you've got the option um, but also 
you can still use the old way because you've got complete control over it um, because you, you were dictated exactly how it was interacting with, say, the APIs or with knowledge bases at, at a level that you you can't get just by the inherent capabilities of the, of these new GPTs. The example, so to give some examples of, of what I mean or, or how GPTs might be used. So the, the example that they gave on Dev Day. Um, it was actually they created a GBT that acted as a coach for, for for tech founders, but the the possibilities for what you can create with a GBT are, are kind of almost endless. And, and I don't know if either of you noticed that a really funny example yesterday. It was Sam Altman. Um, he, he roasted Elon and his kind of his new um, AI, which is called Guac, okay. um, and he essentially just posted a screenshot. <laughs> Um, showing him going going through the creation process for a GPT, and he he simply wrote in, in the instructions, um, "Be a chatbot that answers questions with cringy boomer humor in a sort of awkward, shock to get laughs sort of way," <laughs> and then named it Guac. <laughs> um, <laughs> Harsh but fair. Yeah, if anybody's seen any of the interactions with Guac that Elon's posted, um, that that's kind of exactly how it. It replies at least at the moment. But so if, if you think about um, the way I really like to think about the evolution here is before you might have wanted to customize your GBT if you are using the web chat interface as by saying things like pretend you are a teacher. And, and we've always talked about that, about that as kind of prompting to get the AI to be the kind of person you want to talk to. Um, but what GPTs now do is they're they're actually massively they ramp up that whole process. So now instead of prompting and having to upload documents, the GBT can inherently be equipped with all of um, the material that it needs to have that conversation with you. Um, so, for example, if you set one up as a teacher um, that needs to mark homework, you could equip it with all of the course material that it needed to help you grade to help grade the papers. And it could also speak exactly like a teacher to give the final notes and, and marks as well without having to, to set that up each and every time um, in, a, in a, a chat window in the web interface. I mean, it's actually, um, to, sorry, to, to echo back to stuff I was talking about, um, one of the things that Musk was, talk, was saying was that one of the real benefits of AI was the fact that we could have our own personalized, very capable tutors on any subject. Uh, so, so it's that sort of follow-on from what you're saying, I think. Yep, and I think we're going to also see personalised tutors, but people are also probably going to want to try to replicate themselves as much as possible, <laughs> so that they can get away <laughs> with submitting AI-generated work as their own. Well, I mean, actually, on a more kind of positive spin on the same thing, it, where you have experts in particular fields so the example that sam altman gave actually in in dev day was uh, where he'd been doing loads of work with y combinator and he'd given the same talk lots and lots of times and actually creating effectively a, a or, or encapsulating all of the knowledge that sam altman has about startups in an ai um, based on the materials that he's produced actually it kind of is it, you know it, from a consulting perspective, for example, allows you to create virtual versions of 
the consultants that always sell the project and never deliver it. So imagine having that person there delivering the project as well as selling it. It's going to be a revolution. <laughs> it could also potentially be part of a, a client onboarding process, whether you tell them or not. <laughs> it's setting up a GPT that outputs how they expect um, things to be delivered to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I think I think that part is really interesting where you start to clone humans, essentially, with their own unique knowledge and personalities and stuff. So, Rich, Absolutely. does so Rich does Dev Day mean that it's the end of AI startups? That's a really good question, and and my so I was looking through some of the initial reactions to the the Dev Day, and um, a lot of people were actually saying, "Is this the end? Like, is this the end of AI-based startups?" And I've got to admit that. As someone obviously working as a startup, kind of panicky, I went back back through the announcements to see if I'd missed anything because because that isn't how I'd grasped the, all, all of the developments that that they'd um, that they told us about. Um, but this discussion about obsolescence is a very real one, and and what people are talking about here is um, it's centering around AI startups that essentially are serving as as thin layers on top of AI so that they give it typically a distinct personality and in some cases equipping it with very basic tools but usually that's just in terms of um, uploading documents as, as knowledge bases um, and I think for AI startups and businesses it, it's actually really worth examining your value proposition in, in light of these updates um, and it's not just about considering whether your current offerings are eclipsed but it's whether they can withstand the test of upcoming innovation so if can they be eclipsed going forwards and and if you are listening to this as a someone working for an ai based business I, I think it's important to ask yourself does your product or service use ai to get better or is it trying to make AI behave better? Because if AI improves your product, then updates are very likely to improve, either improve your product or simplify your development of it. And, and you're always going to look forward to those updates. But if your product aims to try to improve AI, well, you know, that's, that's something that's going to happen naturally as large language models evolve. And that's something that is happening naturally. And so you're always going to need to kind of try to stay ahead of that um, and that could could end up being an exercise of kind of trying to tread water <laughs> that increasingly gets harder um, so I definitely think you should be thinking about how updates might affect your business in the long run you know not not every enhancement will be quickly outdated so that there are some specialization if you, if you are making AI behave better but it's for a quite a niche or important specialization that's essential um, that's in a niche um, and that customers would always want an expert solution rather than the, the big generic large language model that, that probably doesn't care about Acme um, limited um, so you, you need to think about are you operating in an area that's always going to need that even if you're enhancing AI um, but it's you know it's it's critical to be assessing this so that you get into a position where when there are new updates um, by OpenAI and all of the other language models, you, that you're in a position where you're excited by them because it means you can do more or save time 
rather than dreading them <laughs> because it's just wiped out one of your departments, for example. Yeah, I, th I, th I think what I find interesting about this is the really what most of OpenAI's announcements in the dev day were about them creating wrappers around the models. So originally it was just a straight, you call the model, you have to do all the work yourself. And what they're now doing is packaging it up to make it easier to consume for both technical and non-technical people. Um, and, and so where startups were just doing that basic packaging, then the value is limited because it's really just, I've got a little bit of technical know-how and so I've been using my technical know-how to, to, to kind of improve it. Um, the, the, I, so I, I would say, you know, absolutely the difference is if your product stands alone without the AI and then AI makes it better, I think I completely agree that that's, that's really the test of a startup which obviously insight flow falls into. <laughs> um, I, I also, I'd like to just observe the fact that um, we've now switched over to virtual rich, who's, um, who's the clone of the real one. Um, and his background has faded out completely, um, which I think it, is kind of exciting. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, it's so just the, the closing in of the nights. No, so no one will have noticed have no one will have noticed the I'm transition the at all. It was seamless. But look at him. Isn't he and, brilliant? And do you know what? I, I'm not in a room at the moment that's got a smart bulb. So, so you see how useful they are? Uh, <laughs> Could well, have just muted myself and said, turn the light on. Excellent. So, um, so I, you know, we've heard, obviously, a little bit about, um, I'm going to be able to say at this time, multimodal models um, and how much of an impact they're going to have on the way that the, the world works. Um, we have heard about the kind of impact and challenges for regulation and risk in in AI, and we've heard about the Open AI Developer Conference, which I think you know, and, and all of these things, I guess, really to me illustrate how quickly everything's changing, um, including my colleagues who are both virtual now, as far as I can tell. And on that note, I'm Giles. I'm Rich. And I've been Max Headgroup. No, I'm Graham. I'm now virtual Giles as well. Mm -hmm.